Hey, another great episode of Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you heard, please go online to redsearadio.org and donate, become a monthly sustaining member, and keep us on the air. Thank you and God bless. Good morning. It is Wednesday, September 2nd, 2020. Yes, 2020 isn't over yet. And you're listening to the Red Sea Roundup. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Beauvais. Today, in the second part of our segment, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Michael P. Foley. He's a professor of patristics at Baylor University. And he's the author and editor of several books, including Frank Sheed's Translation of Augustine's Confessions. He's the author of The Politically Incorrect Guide to Christianity and the wonderful book Drinking with the Saints, The Sinner's Guide to a Holy Happy Hour. Uh, Just as a, uh, a note, Dr. Foley will also be the keynote speaker at our annual KYAR benefit dinner. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But first, as always, I want to welcome everybody listening to us on KEDC 88.5 FM Hearn, Bryan College Station. Also, a shout out to our listeners in Central Texas on KYAR 98.3 FM Lorena, Waco. And also our listeners in Palestine on KINF 107.9 FM. We're live this morning, so if anybody has something they would like us to know about what's going on in their parish community, feel free to give us a call on 85-LOVE-RED-C. That's 855-683-7332. I'm joined in the studio this morning with Dr. Thaddeus Romanski, our station manager and general wise Wise source of... (laughs) General Wise Guy. General Wise Guy. <laughs> Good morning, Deacon Mike. Great to uh, be with you. Always a pleasure to have you on, and I am uh, really pumped about having Dr. Michael Foley in the uh, the second part of the show. And uh, we would be remiss if we also didn't mention his newest book out, which is Drinking with Your Patron Saints. Ah, uh, yes. So his original book, his Drinking with the Saints, is sort of like a liturgical calendar format. Drinking with your patron saints is sort of a potent, potable lives of the saints. Ah, looking forward to reading that. I bet you are. (laughs) But uh, while we're on the topic of drinking and, by extension, eating, uh, let's talk a little bit about the upcoming benefit dinner up in Waco for the KYAR radio station. Tell us a little bit about it, Thaddeus. What's coming up? Uh, Well, we had to postpone our usual springtime KYAR benefit to October. October 8th is the date. We're going to be at a new location to give ourselves maximum uh, safety and uh, provision for our attendees' health. So we're going to be at the Knights of Columbus Hall in West Texas. And that's going to be on October 8th. The town west, not west Texas. Correct. The town of west, (laughs) which is uh, outside of the Waco metro area. Uh, So we we have uh, been so blessed by our KYR listeners that they have hung with us through these uncertain times. 
people who had purchased tickets and tables back in the springtime hung on to their reservations, their table reservations and tickets, stayed with us. They're still coming, and we are going to have a great time. Um, We're going to have plenty of social distancing beyond CDC uh, current guidelines right or or right right at those guidelines and we are going to have a beautiful meal um, prepared by the West Knights of Columbus group and Dr. Michael Foley is going to talk to us about how to drink like a saint in five easy lessons and uh this is one of the things that's important uh, in this strange time we're living in right now is people feel cautious mm-hmm. about attending any sort of function. But uh, again, a reminder that, uh, you know, there are guidelines out there how to do these things safely. And uh, if you follow these guidelines, there's really no additional risk of attending. And so we want to encourage everybody, uh, you know, be cautious, follow the guidelines, wear a mask, uh, sanitize your hands, but come out to the benefit dinner, enjoy yourself, and be entertained because you will be entertained. Yes, we're we're really so grateful that uh, Dr. Michael Foley stepped into the breach and is going to be speaking with us at the KYAR benefit dinner on. Thursday, October 8th, there in the town of West Texas at the Knights of Columbus Hall. You can get all the information you need on our website, redsearadio.org slash benefit. There's still a little bit of seating left, so you can still purchase a ticket and get in there if you haven't done so yet, but uh, don't wait too much longer. Very good. also want to remind the people here in the Brazos Valley area around Bryan College Station to save the date for the benefit dinner for KEDC. Uh, ours is scheduled for Thursday, November 12th, so put that on your calendar. It'll be at the Brazos Center again. Yeah, that's, a, that's a venue change again, yes. guys. Again, to make sure that we have enough room for social distancing. Mm-hmm. So that's not where we normally have it, but we're trying to make sure that we can plan for a safe and uh, wonderful, enjoyable Evening, right? So. And if I can jump in there with some more of the details, because um, I'm a little bit closer to that event than the one in Waco, we are going to be at the Brasses Center, which, like Deacon Mike mentioned, is a larger venue than our traditional home at St. Thomas Aquinas. And we're sad that we had to go away from there because of the circumstances. But uh, St. Thomas Aquinas blessed us uh, in making this decision, and they they understand why we had to do that. So we're going to have a larger venue. We're going to have a Slightly reduced guest list, but not not too much reduced. We're going to put nine feet between 60-inch round tables. We're going to have a maximum of five guests per table. Larger venue space, little smaller total people there. I think those are some, some important guidelines that we want you to know. We are taking your health and safety seriously. We are taking your concerns about that seriously, and we want to make it a great, safe event, and we want you to be there to support the radio station that you love and to get, again, a fantastic, entertaining talk from Michael Foley. Twofer, coming back, coming down to the Brazos Valley, going to give that 
same, that, that talk, learn how to drink like a saint in five easy steps. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. You can tell how excited we are about uh, Dr. Foley being here. Even Dennis Maka has stepped into the room. That's how excited we are. I, I am very excited. You guys can hear me okay? Oh, yes. I, uh, I wanted to mention, too, one thing when Thaddeus was talking about this on the air is normally if you make a table reservation, I don't think you mentioned this yet, you get eight seats, right? I didn't go into those specifics, no. Okay, but so if you're saying five per table, people are kind of thinking, I'm going to get gypped. But no. Wait, oh, there's yes, more. Yes, yes. Each table, technically, the reservation is going to have two tables of five. So we're actually giving you a bonus two seats. Right. So, so if you if you reserve yeah. a table as you have in the past, instead of getting one table with eight seats, you're going to get two tables with five, five seats, seats per. each. Yeah. So just letting you know, you're going to actually get a bonus. And so we're looking to actually sell out this benefit uh, pretty quickly because each group's going to have two tables. So we're, we're just maximizing for comfort, for safety, for everyone. And it's just going to be a blast. So again, uh, keep in mind that the benefit up in uh, West, the town of West for KYAR is coming up on October 8th. That's right down the road. And then save the date for the KEDC benefit dinner at the Brazos Center coming up. In November, at, uh, November 12th. So and I want to give a quick uh, hello and thank you to the staff at the Brazos Center. They have been super accommodating and great to work with. So thank you very much, staff at the Brazos Center so far in the planning. And as we continue, I wanted to touch briefly on the COVID situation at Mass. Uh, as we're getting more used to the social distancing and wearing the masks and things as people feel more comfortable returning to masks. Keep in mind that uh, still need to follow the safety precautions, but uh, we all need to start planning on coming back to mass. And when we feel comfortable doing so, I'm always afraid that people have gotten so used to the idea of getting up in the morning in their PJs and watching mass on the computer that perhaps uh, the tendency may be to start making that the normal, and that should never be the normal for us as Catholics. So as things become better, I want to encourage everybody to start thinking ahead and start planning on when and how are we going to safely return to Mass and um, being an example to your family members. Yeah, and I think what you're kind of talking about there, Deacon Mike, is uh, what's in your heart. Yes, right? you talked about don't let don't let in your in your heart and your soul, your mind, it become. Well, this is the normal standard operating procedure. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you know the, the the for the diocese of Austin, that's kind of the situation we're primarily speaking yes. of. That dispensation from the bishop is still in place; it's yes. still in effect, but. When that when that goes away, and at some point it will, it will, um, then we still have our obligation to mm-hmm. worship at mass, worship in person at mass. Yes, on and, Sundays and holy days of obligation. And as long as we have the social distancing, the dispensation will probably stay in effect because not everyone's going to be able to come to mass. But as soon as that goes by the wayside, we'll have to start planning. Um, right. And we <clears throat> we pray that that goes by the wayside sooner rather than later, because it going by the wayside means that 
the pandemic is yes. petering out. Yeah. All right. Uh, for our saint of the day, we're going to get a three for tonight, uh, today. Uh, last week, uh, Thursday and Friday, we celebrated two saints. And um, I always want to mention St. Monica and St. Augustine together. And um, the thing that is amazing about St. Monica to me is St. Monica is not a saint because of her great writings. Mm -hmm. She's not a saint because she started a religious order. She's not a saint because of anything she did other than pray for her husband in St. Augustine. Right. And if ever we needed an example of a saint in these times, it's St. Monica. She prayed for 30 years for the conversion of her husband and her son and never gave up. When we look at the world around us and we go, God's not hearing our prayers. Nothing's changing. Keep St. Monica in mind. But the thing that I find fascinating about the two of them is the fact that St. Augustine, who was so reluctant to follow his mother's desires and join the church, is one of the great doctors of the church today. It may have taken him 30 years to have that conversion. So always keep in mind when family members have left the church, when we're disappointed in how things have turned out. Let's not become discouraged. Let's always remember that St. Augustine and St. Monica have uh, set a great example for all of us. Now, the threefer, as we mentioned- uh, About one minute. Dr. uh, Michael Foley published a book, Drinking with the Saints, which Mm -hmm. is going to be the topic of this speech at the benefit dinner. And today is a feast of Steve uh, Stephen of Hungary. Uh-huh. And, of course, since it's drinking with the saints, Dr. Foley has a suggestion for September 2nd. You don't say. He does. And in case you've never heard of it, there is a brandy-like spirit called Palinka in Hungary. And it is to Hungary with Scotch whiskey is to Scotland. Aha. Uh-huh. So it's the national It is the national drink, brand. The national so, liqueur. Right. So if you want to drink with St. Stephen of Hungary, buy a bottle of Palinka. Go find some Palinka at, Go your, find some Palinka. at your neighborhood store. Interesting thing is it comes in fruit flavors, pear, apricot, cherry, plum, uh, all different kinds. So when you're thinking of drinking with the saints, today it's Palinka. We'll see you on the other side of the break with Dr. Michael Foley. And in a moment, we'll be talking with Dr. Michael Foley, the professor of patristics of Baylor University and uh, author of or editor of several books. Uh, He edited Frank Sheed's translation of Augustine's Confessions. He wrote The Political Incorrect Guide to Christianity and Drinking with the Saints, The Sinner's Guide to a Holy Happy Hour. 
And uh, as mentioned, he'll be the keynote speaker for our KYAR benefit dinner coming up on October 8th in West Texas. And we're having a few technical difficulties um, getting the sound quality right, so well, we're working on that. All, we've been having them all morning, I tell you, from East Texas all the way to Central Texas. They've been getting a lot of rain and yes. a lot of storms, and so a lot of flooding going on up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, but also in the uh, the Waco area. I know they got a just a boatload of rain, literally, so... And then the, the Palestine station was up and down all night throughout the night. So, you know, it just, it just happens with radio. So we're getting Dr. Foley on the line. He's ready and available. We're just trying to get it to where he doesn't sound like he's in a, in, in a cardboard box when he's talking to us. Yeah, one of the things that, uh, you know, weather messes with all kinds of things. It messes with your telephones. It messes with cell phones. It messes with radio towers. It messes with your health and makes you think you have COVID. <laughs> So, you know, if you got fever and you're aching, that's great. If it's just sneezing and, and wheezing, you know, you probably got allergies. So Yes, and they just mentioned on the news last night that, you know, ragweed is oh, extremely high. And those of us I've been allergic to ragweed, yeah. scratchy throat, itchy eyes, yeah. sneezing. Yeah. Well, we, we pray for all those that do have the COVID and are uh, struggling with it, you know, getting over it. I've known quite a few people. So, yes. Unfortunately, it's just the times we're in, but we're very excited about Dr. Foley and his interview and as well as his uh, upcoming presentations, as we mentioned. So, yeah, so I think we got him back on the line here. Let's uh, give it a, a good college try. So, Dr. Foley, are you with us? I am with you. Can you hear me? Yeah, that's a lot better. Good. <laughs> Glad to hear it. How are you doing? Uh, uh, is it still raining there in Waco? It is now a drizzle. Okay. How about, uh, are you at College Station? Uh, we're in College Station. We're, uh, our station is at the uh, St. Mary's uh, Catholic Center. So uh, ah. we had a little bit of rain this morning, not a whole lot. So uh, there's still a chance of rain here. But uh, this far south, we haven't gotten as much rain as they were predicting. But... Um, we're not out of the woods yet. We may still get some of it. Well, we have rain predicted today and tomorrow. And we had quite a storm that lasted at least 10 hours last night. Whoa. Uh, really bright lightning. Uh, thunder woke me up at least three times last night. I was surprised by the length of the storm. And thank goodness the winds weren't too bad. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was a storm. Changing from talking about the weather, I um, want to welcome you to the show. Uh, tell us a little bit, uh, you're a professor of patristics at Baylor University. How did you get interested in patristics? Well, uh, to be honest with you, it was interest in only one person, St. Augustine. Ah, that I read the Confessions when I was a freshman in college. I thought it was amazing. And then read it again in graduate school when I was doing theology. And I just found that of all the people that I was reading, St. Augustine was the one who fascinated me the most. And so I did my dissertation on St. Augustine. And by default, that makes me someone who does patristics. 
But to be perfectly honest with you, I feel like I'm kind of a fraud. Uh, they, they should make me a professor of patristic, because I really don't do the plural. I, I know Augustine better than I know any of the other church fathers, as, as wonderful as they are. Now, one of the things I found, in, uh, this is um, reading the confessions. The translation has a lot to do with how people view St. Augustine's Confessions. Some of them are much easier to read than others. Which translation did you originally read? It was a translation you don't hear much about anymore uh, by a man with a memorable last name, Pinecoffin. Huh. And uh, it was good. It was a, it was a solid uh, translation that was probably from the 1950s or 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that I prefer in general and assign to my students is the one by Frank Sheed, which he translated in the 1940s. Uh, to me, it is the most eloquent. Unfortunately, it's not always the most accurate. There's always a tension between accuracy and, and beauty when translating. Well, uh, this is uh, true for any translation, even when we're talking about uh, translation of Scripture. Uh, You can put emphasis on how it sounds, or you can put emphasis on how accurate it is to what it says. You can't always do both, because language differences don't allow for that. Oh, and as someone who has now translated several of Augustine's dialogues, it is such a thankless endeavor there's an old Italian proverb, he who translates lies. And there's truth to it because something always gets lost in translation. When you first read the confessions, uh, how old did you say you were? Uh, 18 or 19. 18 or 19. What struck you the most about St. Augustine's life in relation to your own? What struck me was how much I could relate to his problems, uh, the the temptations of teenage years and that sort of thing. I think what really struck me was, despite the fact that this is a, a man from fourth century Roman North Africa, a vastly different time and place, our problems were the same. Yes. This is one of the things I think that makes the confession such a classic is they're not limited to time and place. They talk about the human condition and the human quest for God. And that has never changed. Exactly. There's a story of my teacher who's one of the... my mentors who taught me the confessions used to tell a story that he had recommended as extra Christmas reading the confessions to a student. And when he saw the student after the break, the student was still reading it in the uh, hallway. And he walked up to my teacher and he tapped on the book and and he said, you see this, you see this, this is me. Fascinating. 
Uh, quick reminder, we're talking to Dr. Michael Foley, the professor of patristics at Baylor University. He also will be the keynote speaker at the KYAR Benefit Dinner, and he'll be talking about Drinking with the Saints, one of your books. And we don't want to go too much into Drinking with the Saints, but would you give us a brief description of why you wrote this book? Well, I wrote it because it needed to be written. I was appalled to see that there was no good Catholic bartender's guide out there. There are plenty of good Catholic cookbooks, but uh, nothing that gives you beer, wine, and cocktail suggestions for the feast days of the church year. And so that's what Drinking with the Saints does. And... uh how did you go about doing the research? I would imagine there's not a whole lot written about this. No, there isn't. Um, what I did was I read the story of the saint of the day. I saw and looked for any sort of tie-ins to an alcoholic beverage. Sometimes that was easy. We actually know the drinking habits of the more modern saints, but the further back in time you go, the the fewer details there are about eating and drinking habits. So I'd have to find some other kind of tie-in. Maybe that was uh, a symbol in Christian art that's used for the saint that is also used in an ingredient as a, as a cocktail or something like that. I just think uh, it's fascinating that you managed to find a connection for the entire uh, liturgical year, basically. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, just from a curiosity standpoint, it's fascinating to go through this from a different perspective, to just, you know, look at the saint and go, hey, you know, there's something here, you know, that we can celebrate this saint day with uh, a cocktail or a glass of wine or something and uh, feel the connection. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it was definitely the most enjoyable research project I've ever had. Um, Dr. Foley, it's Thaddeus Romanski um, jumping in here with a question. Sure. Um, I, uh, I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about not, now, this is not to disparage people who like to drink beer more or drink wine more, <laughs> but um, talk, can you talk a little bit about the art of making a cocktail and kind of tie that in with uh, the via pulchritudinous, the, the way of beauty, uh, the idea of crafting something. Because I, I think there's really well, sure. something neat there. The, uh, I do like, I do recommend beer, wine, and cocktails in the book. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> I try to be an, uh, give, give free reign to all different tastes. Yes. But um, I do like cocktails. I like them because... They are actually relatively affordable. Um, you know, buying your own ingredients and making a cocktail at home is, is very inexpensive compared to a bar or even a, a bottle of wine. But I, I like the fact that I can mix something quickly and easily and even out of relatively inferior ingredients and still produce an impressive product. That, to me, is the difference between lay spirituality and monastic spirituality. The monks can make great whiskey and great beer because they have great patience and great virtue. I don't. 
um, and my life as a layman sort of cobbles together all sorts of different uh, obligations and tasks. And hopefully out of these inferior activities of mine, I'm able to bring something nice together. So I think of the cocktail as kind of an allegory of lay spirituality. Wow. I, I really, I really like that. Um, that's not, that wasn't actually the <clears throat> the direction I was thinking you were going to go in. Um, because I know for me, I like to make cocktails as well. I, I'm a little bit of a, a amateur home bar, home barman. And I, um, I especially like the, the putting together of the different ingredients and the, and the time that it, that it takes to, um, make all the proportions correct to choose the, the correct glass, you know, maybe, um, the time in perhaps cutting the, the peel for the lemon twist or for the orange twist, um, all those little different ingredients and then all the different ways that you can do variations. Uh, there's so much, there's so much of human, uh, ingenuity and creativity that, uh, has been given to us by our creator that kind of comes out in this in this process. And then you get to give somebody something that's beautiful to almost all the five senses, I would, I would say as well. Oh, no disagreement there. It, there is something beautiful about uh, the presentation of a cocktail, especially if it has a garnish or is in a beautiful uh, uh, cocktail glass. You know, it, uh, it, one of the neat things about cocktails is the cocktail culture mm-hmm. that accompanies it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the barware and the glassware and the, the style and the methods. It's, uh, it's fun. No, no disagreement there. I will have to uh, take your all's word for it because I've never been real big on mixing cocktails. Uh, but uh, listening to the two of you, I would equate it a lot with cooking. Uh, that ultimately it is, at its best, it's an art form. Uh, mixing a cocktail with just the ingredients that when they come together, they form something better than the ingredients themselves. And this is, to me, what great cooking is all about. And it sounds like that's what mixing a good cocktail is all about. That's absolutely true. But one of the reasons why my wife and I were interested in making drinking with the saints is that we like to find ways of marking the liturgical year. But let me tell you, mixing a cocktail in honor of say St. Therese is a heck of a lot easier than baking a cake in honor of St. Therese. (laughs) (laughs) I would have to agree with that. Uh, one other thing that uh, moving away from drinking with the saints, and again, that's what you're going to be talking about at the benefit dinner uh, for KYAR on October 8th. But uh, some of the other books that you've been working on, and one of the titles struck me, uh, especially given the current climate. Uh, the book is Political Incorrect Guide to Christianity. Explain that's that. That's right. That came out a couple of years ago, and I'm really proud of that book. I, I really enjoyed writing it. I basically tried to provide an updated version of C.S. Lewis's defense of Christianity, um, also channeling some of the great Catholic apologists like uh, Ronald Knox. And uh, it was a lot of fun. I, I, 
try to be lighthearted about controversial issues, but there is no doubt that Christianity is politically incorrect, and it seems to be coming more politically incorrect by the day. But I think, in a way, that is actually a return to Christianity's roots, that Christianity was never intended to be politically correct, but rather was always intended to be a counterpoint to the culture. That is absolutely right. Even in the age of Christendom, there was something politically incorrect about Christianity. It, it's the only religion that can never fully be absorbed by the state and its needs. Well, I think in part because the whole purpose of Christianity is dying to self and becoming Christ-like to others, and the political system is almost the polar opposite of that. It is making your will predominant, and that does yeah, not I equate with that. Christianity. Uh, maybe one thing that good citizenship and good belief or discipleship have in common is a sense of self-sacrifice. You know, in a, in a patriotic community, sacrificing for your country is, uh, is, a, is encouraged. But the goals are different. That, in a sense, there are different goods. Uh, you know, the state seeks the health of the state, the continuation of the state, whereas Christianity seeks eternal salvation. It's a different kingdom. And in addition to that, Christianity always has a broader sense of including all mankind, where a political system, by definition, is restricted in its... Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. It, it, by definition, it, it, it cannot be otherwise. Yes. It, it has to take care of its citizens. That's its job. Right. And so, again, a true Catholicism always needs to, while embracing patriotism, it needs to stand apart. That's exactly right. And that's a good way to put it. Patriotism is a virtue. And so it should be encouraged. Uh, on the other hand, it's not the highest virtue. It needs to be informed by supernatural virtues of faith, hope, and charity. Uh, Michael Thaddeus here again. Kind of, kind of take this conversation you're having with uh, Deacon Mike, and can you put it in the context of Saint Augustine's life, especially his City of God? I mean, he was grappling with some of these questions in that in that great work. Yes, that's absolutely true, and he was a big inspiration for my own thoughts on political philosophy and and the relationship of Christianity to the earthly kingdoms. The City of God is actually misunderstood quite a bit. Uh, a lot of people think that this was the sort of beginning of the separation of church and state in a sort of secular way, because he, he distinguishes the city of man from the city of God. But it's, it's much more, um, it's much different than that. He's basically talking about two different kinds of love. And we who belong to the city of God are inspired by a love of God to the contempt of self, as he puts it. Whereas uh, the political life on its own is, as we were talking about earlier, only interested in a certain kind of self-preservation. So the two cities can get along, and the city of God actually 
can be very helpful to the city of man, but our destinations are entirely different. And isn't that the point St. Augustine was making in writing the book, that the state had nothing to fear from Christianity? Because His, That's exactly right. Yeah. His art, he was responding against the accusation that Christianity was ruining the Roman Empire, that uh, this, this religion that was all about, you know, turning the other cheek and blessed are the meek, mm-hmm. that this was ruining Roman uh, civic courage, Roman manliness. And it was that manliness that was necessary to keep the barbarians at bay. And Augustine responded to this critique by saying, no, um, yes, we we turn the other cheek, but we will also fight for our country, and we actually make better citizens because we are more conscientious and more just. And this, I think, again, relates well to our current time, that while, you know, there needs to be an understanding that there is a difference between being a Catholic and being a part of any political party, but that being a true Christian is a benefit no matter which party you belong to if you live out your faith as it is written. Yes, so, you know, it gets tricky that, on the one hand, Christianity is trans-political. It is, it is beyond all political considerations. On the other hand, we do have a duty to engage the political, to try to make the political situation as godly and as just as we can. So we do have a duty to try to improve our country um, as, a, as an exercise of our charity but also improve our political party, whatever one we belong to, make it more in line with the good, the true, and the beautiful. That is true, insofar as it's possible. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, again, we're talking with Dr. Michael Foley, the professor of patristics at Baylor University. And again, reminder, he will be our keynote speaker at the KYAR benefit on Thursday, October 8th in West Texas. Uh, One other thing I wanted to uh, talk about, and this is uh, one of the fascinating things to me about St. Augustine, and since that's your field of expertise, I figured I'd talk to you about it. Basically, St. Augustine's entire life was a search for the truth, and he went off on all kinds of tangents, but ultimately he was always searching for God. How would you explain the... End direction of St. Augustine, what decision did he, or what conclusion did he come to why all the other routes to truth were inadequate, especially Manichaeism, which he was very much a part of for part of his life? Right. Basically, he figured out that God was the only thing that could fill the ache in his heart. The famous opening line of the Confessions, our hearts are restless until they rest in Thee. And the reason why our hearts are restless until they rest in God, Augustine learned, was that our hearts are hardwired to want nothing else but God. And when we try to fill that void with lesser goods, 
we end up being unhappy and dissatisfied. Reading the Confessions and uh, other writings of St. Augustine and things about St. Augustine, one of the things that struck me is it is such a clear example of why the church believes in faith and reason. That, Mm. you know, he tried to reason his way into an understanding of God. And this is, you know, the whole explanation of good and evil, well, makes much more sense if it's uh, binary, if you have a good God and a bad God, or at least good and evil. And it makes a logical sense, but he found it lacking because it didn't quiet the restlessness that he was feeling about truly finding God. That is correct. And reason plays an important journey, uh, important role in Augustine's journey. He can't use reason alone to get to God, but he at least can use reason to weed out some of the false alternatives. And that was the beginning of the end with his relationship with the Manichaeans. It, uh, he, he struggled with the whole good and evil thing for a long time, but the thing that started it all was their absurd claims about astronomy. And Augustine had studied astronomy, and he looked at all these sort of strange astro- astrological superstitions that the Manichaeans had, and he saw there were things that they were teaching that were just factually false. And he realized, how can this be the true religion if it has things that can be so easily disproven by reason? And the Catholic Church and Christianity, the same thing cannot be said of them. Uh, there is nothing in Catholic teaching that can be disproven by reason. There are things that are above the ability of reason to judge, but being above reason is very different from being against reason. The Manichaeans were essentially against reason, even if they didn't know it, whereas Catholic teaching, Catholic doctrine is consistent with reason and above reason. I find it interesting that this was the case for Augustine, the understanding that it ha- the faith has to be reasonable. It has to always uh, be in agreement with the truth. That yeah, it, the church has always been faulted for the whole Galileo story, even though it, uh, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. No, exactly. And uh, Cardinal Newman has a great line about that, because that same accusation was around in his day. And Oh, the church is anti-science. Just look at Galileo. Newman would then say, and who else? Who else besides Galileo? If you're trying to establish that the Catholic Church has a long track record of opposing science, shouldn't you have a long list of Galileo blunders? And yet the only one you can come up with is Galileo. In 2,000 years, you can only provide one example of a mistake made about the relationship of faith and reason. That's not a very good uh, uh, piece of evidence. No, it's not. If you can only find one example to prove your entire point and you have thousands of contrary examples. Oh. That's exactly right. And, and Augustine himself is, is an excellent contrary example. Not to mention the hundreds of Catholic scientists who pioneered 
various fields and made great contributions to them. Many of them priests. Yes, and um, uh, one of the things uh, uh, I was teaching an adult formation class and we were talking about science and religion and I brought up the fact that there are 35 uh, craters on the moon named after Jesuit priests. And, uh, you know, that always gets people's attention that, you know, the church has always been involved in science. Exactly. And that is a great detail about the, uh, the craters of the moon being uh, named after Jesuits. Because they, the Jesuits excelled in the field of astronomy yes. for hundreds of years. They still do. They still run the Vatican Ob- Observatory. Now, changing courses a little bit, uh, one of the things, again, that I found fascinating about uh, your website is your latest works. Now, uh, Augustine wrote four works almost immediately after his conversion to Catholicism, and you've been working on translating them, and the last two are coming out in October. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. And... um, uh, would you briefly just talk about the first two, Against the Academics and On the Happy Life, and tell us a little bit about them? Um, and Absolutely. So Augustine converts to Christianity. He has this experience where he hears the voice of a child say, take and read, and he, he has a copy of the Bible next to him, so he does. He reads this verse from Romans about Uh, letting go of the flesh and its concupiscence, and in that moment he is converted. But this happens sometime in the late summer of 386, and he's not actually formally received into the church until the following Holy Saturday of 387. He has to be a catechumen. He has to go through a rigorous Lenten preparation. When I mean rigorous, it was rigorous. RCAA is a cakewalk. But they really, uh, it was boot camp. The original Lent for catechumens was really, really tough. So he had to go through all that before he was actually baptized. So before all this happens, he and some friends get together and go on a retreat. So they're, they're doing this as catechumens. Augustine isn't even yet a full-fledged Christian. And he writes these four dialogues, and they're absolutely delightful. They're in the style of a Platonic dialogue or a Ciceronian dialogue. They're very uh, bucolic, you know, they're sort of in a villa. Uh, they're, they're talking about God in a meadow um, or in a bathhouse, because every Roman villa had a bathhouse. Um, the, the setting is very serene, the tone is serene, they're... They're, they're a delight to read. How old was he at this point, about? He was 32. Okay. Incredible. So he was writing, he was writing in the, the sort of the genre of his time uh, appropriate to that, the consideration of those kinds of ideas is, is what you're saying. It is true that he took a genre that was popular at the time, um, but he also did wonderful things with it. He kind of he tweaked with it in different ways. Um, but I think the dialogue was a really good vehicle for Augustine. The great thing about a philosophical dialogue is that it throws out 
a lot of tantalizing clues and forces you, the reader, to figure it out. Unlike a treatise, which simply presents the author's argument and you're free to accept it or reject it, you never quite know what's going on in a dialogue. If you remember reading a platonic dialogue, <laughs> Socrates is a greased pig. <laughs> you know, the more you think you got him, the more he just slips out from your fingers. And it, it forces you to think. It forces you to philosophize. That's why Plato wrote them, and that's why Augustine wrote them. Well, the, this type of dialogue lends itself so well to raising points that you might not be able to raise in straight prose. I, a similar thing in uh, the screw tape letters. You never read any of Wormwood's letters, but you know exactly what he would have said because of how it's presented in the letters that you do see. Yes, that's exactly right. And it's, it, it, it's the whole idea of what's not said mm -hmm. that forces the reader to... Uh, to become a better thinker. Yes, you have to fill in the gaps. Exactly. Now, the first two works you, you translated a while back against the academics and on the happy life. Now, the third work is on order. Um, and this is Augustine's early approach to the question of goodness and evil's existence. That is correct, yes. So, Against the academics is against not you know, people in college, but uh, skeptics. There's a school of skepticism called academic skepticism. And he is both appreciative of them in some respects, but also critical of them. And so that's the first dialogue. The second dialogue is On the Happy Life, which is a pretty self-explanatory title. And then On Order, the third dialogue, attempts to answer the question, how can God be both omnipotent and omnibenevolent when there's so much evil in the world? Good thing people aren't asking that question anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. What did you think of Augustine's conclusion to this, especially entering into this? I mean, he has a... a spent a good part of his life uh, tackling this question with the uh, uh, Manichaeans. How did you see how he had evolved? Well, what's interesting is that he's already tackled the Manichaeans by the time he writes this dialogue. So he already knows the answer mm -hmm. that he will lay out in greater detail in the Confessions. Mm -hmm. But in On Order, he is far more coy. Again, it's a dialogue, so he really wants you to think it through. And it ends the dialogue in a very weird way. There's a way in which he doesn't answer the question. Instead, he shifts gears and asks, what kind of education do you, the reader, need in order to be able to answer this question yourself? He, he shifts to the conditions for understanding the answer rather than giving the answer. He, he wants you to acquire the tools through a, a certain kind of education, a liberal arts education, basically, and that it will enable you to answer this question and many more. 
One of the arguments I have heard today about the state of our society is in part it is to blame because we have stopped teaching people to think in school. And I think, you know, this is sort of what Augustine is tackling in his explanation that a liberal arts education is vitally important if we're going to work out things for ourselves because we need to know how to think. That's exactly right. Uh, and that's, that's what he's going for. Uh, rather than indoctrinate or brainwash people with certain ideologies, he's training the mind to become a, uh, a, a better knowing uh, reality. Now, the fourth work is called Soliloquies, and I was shocked. Uh, it says that Augustine coined the term soliloquy, and I have always equated soliloquies with William Shakespeare. And so, uh, that this is a word that Augustine coined uh, was surprising to me. Yes, and I'm not sure when it was first used in reference to the theater. And I can't remember the difference now, but technically there is a difference in theater between a soliloquy and a monologue. Mm -hmm. like one of them, the character is simply speaking out loud and there are other characters on the stage, whereas the other is just the, the character all by himself. Mm -hmm. I can't remember which is which, but those definitions are, are much later. Augustine coined the term soliloquy as basically a kind of spiritual therapy that one does with oneself, that one does with one's reason. Um, so it's, it, I don't actually think the word soliloquy has ever been used, at least in the history of the English language, the way Augustine intended it to be used. When he is uh, in this fourth work, um, it's basically a conversation with Augustine, uh, which is kind of interesting. And, and what's, in, what's also interesting is that there is a way in which it actually is a kind of theatrical production. It's interesting that the theater eventually did pick up his word because he has actually crafted this dialogue to be like a kind of play involving two characters Augustine and his reason. So they're two characters, and yet they are one character. It's, it's very interesting. But uh, one of the things is we get to know a little bit more about Augustine. He is very honest about his failings in the soliloquies. This is similar to that bracing honesty that we see in the Confessions years later. It's already present in the soliloquies. Would you think that perhaps the writing of the soliloquies was sort of a nudge towards writing the confessions? Well, yeah. In, in this, well, I would say that it, it anticipates a lot of what is going on in the confessions. Um, Augustine writes the confessions for different reasons. I don't think when he wrote the soliloquies, he thought, I'm just taking a first stab at this. Later on, I'm going to write the confessions. I don't think he expected to write the confessions. 
Um, but 10 years later, circumstances conspired in such a way that he would. But I would think just, uh, you know, reading the description and uh, that perhaps it laid the groundwork for that further. We're uh, pretty much at the end of our uh, interview. Uh, this is fascinating. I could talk about this for hours. And uh, I want to thank you for being on the show. And uh, I want to thank you for being the keynote speaker for our KYAR benefit. And if our listeners have enjoyed this, buy a ticket to the uh, benefit dinner. And you can listen to Dr. Foley talk about drinking with the saints. Thank you for being with us. Uh, Next week, Gene Wilhelm will be our host from the Red Sea Roundup. Remember to tune in for that. Uh, Dr. Foley, any last words? Well, I just want to thank you for a wonderful conversation, and I wish you and your listeners a wonderful day. Thank you very much. Uh, until next time, when considering the many ways in which you might share your time, talents, and treasure with the people of God, always round up. Round up.